Well, as you can see, the title for today's sermon is Food, Glorious Food, also known as Food, Glorious Food. And uh, if you're young or not into musicals, or both, or you haven't seen Ice Age 2, then you may not be familiar with that tune. Uh, In the musical, Oliver is where that comes from, and it's the opening song. It's sung by a group of orphan boys who live in terrible conditions in a workhouse. And they are served up sloppy gruel for their meals. If you don't know what gruel is, it's basically like gross porridge. And so, as one might naturally expect, the song is all about how these boys just dream of far better food than gruel. They dream of glorious food. This morning, our passage puts uh, our fleshly instinct for food front and center. And there is, without a doubt, a connection in the Bible very often between food and spiritual things. And so as we explore that connection through this passage this morning, I want to ask you the question as I asked before. Are you hungry for glorious food? Do you hunger for glorious food. This morning I have three points for us to help us consider this passage more thematically. And so with our Bibles open, with our notepads ready, our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our stomachs ready to receive words of life, let's dive right in. Point number one is creation is cursed. Creation is cursed. You know, food is so central to the human experience, right? Just think about it. If we were robots, uh, we would have, uh, like Bicentennial Man, we would have batteries and we would just, you know, plug ourselves into the wall to just keep going, you know? Much like every car in 50 years is going to have to do. But that's not how we work. We, we We draw our energy and our sustenance from eating food which our body then processes, deals with, you know, extracts the energy and rejects the stuff that it doesn't need. And that's, that's what we, we need in order to keep functioning. But food, it's not just energy, is it? It's not just the thing that we need in order to keep going. We don't just eat it because we, we need to plug into the power socket every now and again. It is also a means by which we're reminded of the goodness and the provision of God. Good food and a satisfying meal, they point to a God who is good and who satisfies. And that's why it is also such a strong reminder of the fall when our food is fallen. And so whenever I cook in our household, it's a strong reminder to my family of how the fall impacts our food. Thankfully, I don't often cook, and so therefore we don't have to worry about that. In our passage this morning, it highlights two two ways that the fall has affected food. And the first story highlights the problem of a ground that brings forth poisonous fruit. Now, it's likely that both of these stories, they happen in Gilgal, with the sons of the prophets, even though uh, it doesn't spell that out in detail. Um, And uh, here we see 
Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we followed the journey of Elijah and Elisha as they went from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then across the river as they prepared for Elijah's departure. You might remember seeing this uh, here. That, that's the journey that the two of them took as they uh, prepared for Elijah to be taken by God. And we've seen in the chapters since then that Elisha has now actually gone back over the river and gone uh, into Jericho, performed a miracle there, and he's also gone into Bethel uh, where he uh, called down a curse on uh, the boys that were mocking him. And he is now here in our passage in Gilgal. And so this kind of signifies, again, the fact that Elisha uh, really has inherited Elijah's mantle of being the chief prophet. He's going back, retracing, going to the same places that Elijah was. And so it's unsurprising to us that we meet a group of sons of prophets here in Gilgal. And remember, you might remember the sons of prophets is another way of, of describing uh, disciples of the prophet, the people that uh, Elijah was training. And so here in Gilgal, uh, even though there were no sons of prophets mentioned in chapter 2, we can safely assume, well, this is probably a city where Elijah himself was also training up um, more uh, men to be his disciples. And so these, these cohorts seem to have been developed in these various cities. And here in verse 38 is a crucial detail for us to understand in this passage. There was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. Now, it's likely that this, this is the same famine that's mentioned later on in chapter 8, verse 1. It lasts seven years. And for most of us, um, I think it's safe to say that we've, we've probably never had to deal with famine. Certainly, some of us may have had to deal with food shortage in our own household, but not, not a widespread shortage of food in the, in the entire country. Famine in biblical times could be extremely devastating. It resulted in mass inflation of the price of food. Uh, people would often have to relocate to far off lands to live. Uh, or, or they'd have to go and get food from there, as we saw from, in Joseph in Genesis, as we do see. And, and sometimes, of course, people would die of hunger. King David, when he was given options by God uh, of famine or pestilence uh, or war as a punishment for his sin, he, he chose pestilence. Uh, that probably gives us an idea of how bad famine was. And so as you can imagine, in that world, when, when famine is that devastating, these men, they probably would have been pretty desperate for some food. Let's read uh, verse 39. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found, found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds. And came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. Now, this disciple, like me, obviously didn't grow up going to scouts. Right? But you can understand why he and the other guys, that they might have been perhaps less cautious about what they were cooking up. I mean, it might seem careless and crazy to us to think, why would you just go and do that? Like find a random fruit and then just start eating it. And, and yes, there probably is a little bit of carelessness and craziness to that. But in times of great hunger, you can stomach much more than you probably normally would. And you would likely be less discerning than you should be. 
Of course, the result that we see in verse 40 is that there is now death in the pot due to these wild gourds. Now, if you're not uh, normally the one who makes meals in your home, like me, uh, this is not licensed to use the phrase to describe a meal that has not gone to plan (laughs) in your house. Though some would, and now I've just given you that thought, so you're not allowed to say there's death in the pot, unless you cooked it and it really was bad. (laughs) We we don't actually know how bad this death in the pot was. The narrative doesn't tell us uh, whether it actually was deadly, whether it actually was poisonous, or whether it was just a a foul taste. You know, but given that the the language here is, you know, death in the pot, and in verse 41, uh, it it talks about harm in the pot, I think it's it's quite likely that there was actually something quite really bad about this dish that was more than just it tasting bad. The wild gourds that this uh, disciple had put into the pot were a reminder that because of the fall, not everything the ground produces gives life. The second story highlights the other problem that the fall has created. Sometimes the ground, the earth, doesn't produce enough food, especially in the middle of a famine. Let's read from verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. A man from Baal Shalishah, which is a town with an unknown location and mentioned only twice in the Bible. And it was likely probably given to Baal worship, hence the name Baal Shalishah, comes to Elisha, this man, and he gives him an offering of bread of the first fruits. Now, this is likely the first fruits offering that we read about in Leviticus 23. But since there were you know, probably no faithful priests of the Lord in Israel at that time, you know, it makes sense for him to actually uh, come to Elisha to bring him the offering. He's been recognized as the man of God, or as the Shunammite woman called in last week's passage, the holy man of God. And so Elisha instructs his servant, probably Gehazi, to serve it to the men. But of course, he thinks to himself and says out loud what any of us would think. How on earth could such a small amount, 20 small barley loaves and some grain, how could that possibly be enough to feed a hundred grown men? You can't satisfy everyone's hunger if there's not enough food to go around. So these two stories remind us that creation is cursed, both in what it produces produces wild gourds that create death in the pot and also in the amount that it produces. It's not enough. And that has been true ever since the fall. God states it rather bluntly to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 to 18, when he says, as a result of his and Eve's disobedience to God, 
Cursed is the ground. In pain you shall eat of it. The ground is cursed and they shall eat of it in pain. And in addition to this, when Israel came into the promised land, they made a covenant with God to remain faithful to him. In Deuteronomy 28, uh, God outlines some of the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed. Like verse 18, which explicitly curses the fruit of the ground. As we know, Israel were disobedient. They did not keep to their covenant. And so because Adam broke his covenant with God in Eden, and because Israel, specifically here, broke their covenant with God in the promised land, the ground is cursed. Wild, poisonous gourds grow and famine strikes the land. You see, as Christians, we we don't believe that nature is a morally neutral thing. We we don't believe that uh, the fact that nature is, as someone once said, red in tooth and claw isn't simply because some blind process evolved some creatures and plants to give life and others to take it away. No, as Christians, we see in creation a profound sense of goodness and beauty in the world, as well as the image of God in every human being. But we also see The devastation of sin and its curse on both creation and human beings. It's evident to us, isn't it? Isn't it obvious? That the world around us and that the people that we interact with who inhabit the world fall far short of a perfect standard. We recognize that the fall has not just cursed the ground. The fall has not just cursed our food. It has cursed us. As Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 makes clear, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That is, all who remain under the old old covenant, all who try to seek salvation through works, remain under that curse. And of course, as Romans 10 reminds us, none is righteous. None. Because of the curse. The curse of sin has made it impossible For you and for me to earn our righteousness before God. Just as the ground and the fruit of the the world are cursed by the fall, so are our very selves. And you know, the curse of sin, it dulls our spiritual hunger. The curse of sin causes us to satisfy ourselves with Wild gourds and stew that will kill us. Just think about this for a moment. When you're in a spiritual famine, when you are starving, 
Which poisonous wild gourd do you reach for first? I mean, we all go through spiritual famines, don't we? The signs of it are a lack of joy in Jesus, a general apathy towards God and towards spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading his word. Things like real seeking God for what he gives, not for who he is. Having a slow drift towards a greater love for this world and for this life. And for the joys and the things in it. Do you recognize the signs? And when you do, what is the first sin you go to in order to try and feed that hunger? You see, each of us are going to battle different sins. Some of us will, will not struggle with certain sins, but struggle with others. Each of us are going to scatter to different wild vines across the spiritual landscape in order to try and satisfy that hunger. What's yours? I can tell you mine, which I imagine is probably one for a lot of us. Entertainment. Leisure, recreation. It's way easier to finish the day scrolling through all sorts of different news feeds and videos or watching shows than it is to actually feed on something good for my soul. Now, I get that there's, there's a healthy way of enjoying those things. But have you done the calculations for that? If that is something that you struggle with, have you considered... entertainment and recreation's place in your life. I was telling John just a, uh, the other week how I felt like, uh, you know, I was probably a little bit too full. I needed something to just kind of help me unplug, release the pressure valve a little bit. So I bought a Disney Plus uh, subscription because I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I watched a couple of episodes of some shows. And then after a few weeks, I had to take a step back and just ask myself, am I doing this too much now? Am I, am I like trying to nourish my soul with this thinking that this is actually going to give me a, a kind of rest and satisfaction that it cannot give? I think I am. I, I'm with Rosaria Butterfield on this one. We ought to keep our recreation on a very short leash. If it becomes clear that this sin, that's just one example. If it becomes clear that this sin, whatever it is for you, is something that you are feasting on in order to fill the void. If it is poisoning your hunger and your love for glorious food. Beware, my friend. Beware. You may be eating from a death pot without even realizing it. Satan, your enemy... He might just be slowly adding slices of wild gourd to your pot ever so subtly that you haven't even noticed the change in flavor. Friends, don't, don't let your tongue get used to 
and start to love the taste of death. Be on your guard. The curse of creation extends not just to the ground and to all that it produces, but it extends to us. And healing and food for life can only come from one. It can only come from one. And that brings me to my next point. Food for life. How is this cursed food dealt with? How can we possibly reverse this curse? Well, Elisha deals with both issues in our passage with the power and with the word of the Lord. Let's read verse 41. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. As I mentioned before, I think there's more going on here than it being simply a flavor issue that simply Elisha was a culinary expert and who just went, hmm, hmm, just needs more flour. No, I don't think that's what's happening. The gods were harmful to the men. There was death in the pot. Elisha, he miraculously heals it by simply throwing flour into the pot. Now, we assume that he's, he's done so at God's instruction, even though the narrative doesn't explicitly say that God told him to. And as we saw last week, unless God is behind it, miracles don't happen. And this isn't the first time that food or water has been healed by adding something to it. Just a few weeks ago, we saw how Elisha healed Jericho's water, as I mentioned before, uh, and therefore its food crops by simply adding salt to it. And in Exodus 15, 25, we see Moses healing water for the Israelites by tossing a log into it that God shows to him. And in, in all of these instances, God used the man of God to perform a miracle through means of another physical instrument. And in our case this morning, Elisha uses flour. Uh, Flour perhaps is alluding to the flour that was used in offerings to God that we read about in Leviticus 2. And so maybe in this passage, in these two accounts, there's something in that image and in the first fruits that the man from Baal Shalishah brings uh, that, that is kind of alluding to this, this offering language from Leviticus and shows us how we ought to be completely dependent on God for everything that we need to live. That, that might be there. But either way, God uses Elisha through the, and through his sprinkling of the flour to heal the pot. Let's see what God does in the second story from verse 43. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Well, here there is provision because of the word of the Lord. Elisha, he makes a prophetic announcement. Thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And it happens. God speaks his word through the prophet. And then God acts in accordance 
with the word that he has spoken. We've, something, we've seen something similar to this before as well in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 16, when the people of Israel were famished from wandering around the wilderness and they grumbled to God, God used the man of God, Moses, to provide them with manna from heaven, to provide them with bread from heaven. And here with Elisha, another man of God, God miraculously provides food by multiplying 20 quite small barley loaves and some grain to make it enough for a hundred grown men to eat. And not just enough to eat so that they were full. Enough for there to be leftovers. There was an abundance of bread. In the midst of a famine, I'm pretty sure these men would have been quite grateful for the Lord's provision. And so it is through the reversing of the curse in these two situations we see that the Lord is the one over all creation and that He is the only one who can reverse the curse. God gives food for life. I gave this point this, that name because, uh, as some of you are aware, that is also the name of a feeding program here in Darwin that is run by Baptist Care. Those who struggle with food shortage in our city, they're able to go to one of several locations and buy food at a discounted price in order to feed their households. One of the great things about the way that the program is set up, though is that shoppers are also given the opportunity, if they would like it, to sit down and to have a coffee and have a chat with a volunteer. And the thinking behind that is that there is an opportunity here to talk to those who are physically hungry about an even deeper hunger, about an even deeper need that can only be met by one. And so, food for life becomes about far more than simply filling empty stomachs. It becomes about bringing eternal life to the spiritually hungry. And that's ultimately what our passage points to, isn't it? The same curse, that cursed creation also Cursed us. The same curse that poisoned the ground also poisoned us. The same curse that leads to physical death also separates us from God and leads to eternal death. And in every instance, there is only one who can reverse the curse. There is only one who can fill empty stomachs with bread. There is only one who can feed the cursed with glorified, glorious food for life. And there is only one way of accessing it. You see, these, these men of God, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, they fed people with bread. And they died. Both the people and the prophets died. 
that these, these men of God gave us glimpses of the curse being reversed, but they didn't ultimately reverse the curse. They were not the promised Messiah. We read earlier in John 6 about Jesus feeding thousands of men and women with just five barley loaves and two fish from a boy's lunch. The crowds were amazed and they realized that, hey, he really is a great prophet. If Elisha can feed 100 men with 20 barley loaves, man, how much more incredible is this guy? And the crowd builds and they all have a rush of blood to the head and they decide that they want to follow Jesus. But Jesus, with searing insight, he exposes to them what they're really after. John 6, 26 says, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you guys aren't here. You're not, you're not following me because you recognize your spiritual need and that you have come to get that satisfied. No, you, you just have full stomachs and you want to come and see the rest of the show. And he goes on to tell them that they need to seek food that gives eternal life. Not just physical life. But there's a problem, right? The crowd thinks, okay, sure, but how, how do we access this food? Give us this food. They say to Jesus, our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. You know, Moses, he provided bread from heaven. What are you going to give us, Jesus? What other great thing are you going to do to show us that you'll satisfy our stomachs? How are you going to show us that you're a man of God like the prophets of old? Personally, I, I just find it incredible that they're, they're asking this right after Jesus has just multiplied food for thousands of people. Let's read the next few verses from John 6, verse 32. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me. And yet you do not believe. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Do you want bread that leads to eternal life? Do you want glorious food? It is on Him that you must feed. It is in Him that you must believe. If you know the rest of this story in John 6, you'll know that the crowd ends up finding this, you know, pretty difficult to stomach. And basically everyone leaves Jesus. 
But the 12 apostles remain and Peter, he voices the words that every person since that day who has recognized that Jesus is the bread of life would repeat over and over and over again in their lives. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Only you. And we have come and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have nowhere else to go. Friend, if you are still looking for something that will feed your soul, that will satisfy your stomach, that will endure to eternity, here he is. If you've not yet said with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? I have nowhere else to go, but only to you. Because only you have the words of eternal life. Only you can wash my sins away and make me right before a holy God. If you haven't said that yet, if that is not the bedrock of your life, then please come and talk to me. Come and talk to whoever brought you here today. Because only he can give the bread of life, of eternal life. And brothers and sisters, are these words, are these words that you utter daily? Perhaps not these exact words, but does your life reflect this reality day by day? We talked earlier about how This looks in in not eating wild gourds, in resisting sin. But it's not enough to just resist eating wild gourds. If you don't eat anything, you'll die. In the same way, spiritual growth doesn't happen by simply resisting sin. That is only part of the equation. You must also feed yourself with the bread of life. In order to gain life. That is why Christians for centuries have continued to say, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from sin, resist sin, and turn to Jesus and trust in him. What does this look like? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you... Do you have and do you work up an appetite for the bread of life? You probably know what it's like to be physically starving. Maybe you've done the 40-hour famine or you you go on those 5-2 fast diets or maybe you fasted for spiritual reasons. Do you remember what it was like to anticipate that first meal? Do you remember what it was like to taste bread for the first time after fasting for a period? Bread is its best when you are hungry. Do you hunger for the bread of life in the same way? Do you look at the state of your soul? Do you consider the many ways that you love your sin? 
And do you cry out to God saying, Lord, feed me. Please, Lord, feed me with the bread of life. Give me more of Jesus. Fill me with your spirit. Give me more of your word. Spiritual hunger and feeding on the bread of life comes out of this desperation. This realization that without it, we will starve at best. And at worst, we will feast on wild gourds and we will die. Is that your prayer? Or have you gotten to the point where you simply say, you know what? I've had enough bread. I've had enough of the bread of life. I mean, I've got the gospel. I've turned from my sin. I've put my faith in Jesus. That's, that's all I need. My stomach's full. I'm okay with my one slice of the bread of life. God's happy for me to live however I like now, right? Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is one of continuous feeding. It is one of hungering for more of Jesus, more of his spirit, and more of his word. And that looks like going deeper and deeper and deeper into his word. We plead with God in prayer to to sanctify us as we continue to read God's word, asking that he will shape us to make us more like Christ. You know, the godliest people that you will ever meet, they never stop in this endeavor. Never. Saints who have lived for decades and and continue to return to God's word for a spiritual feast and continue to have their minds, their hearts and their souls transformed by him. They remember, as Peter said, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. I remember David Cook, former principal of SNBC in Sydney, talking about an older woman in his church who was reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God for the third time. Here was a sister in Christ who knew that the food of God's word would keep sustaining her till the day she died and that she had not come to a place where she'd arrived and she didn't need it anymore. I'm so thankful for the many brothers and sisters in Christ that I've met over the years who are much older, much smarter, much wiser than I am. And yet they continue to submit their lives to the word. They continue to seek greater faithfulness to God in everything. At no point do they assume that they have arrived at, 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 you know, the, the pinnacle of Christianity and of Christian maturity and of Christian fullness in the bread. I don't know about you, but that's how I want to live till the day I die. Until the day when I no longer need to be satisfied in this mortal body, but will be satisfied in Him. Brothers and sisters, how are you feeding yourself with the bread of life? One way we try to encourage this in our church is by having expository sermons that go for at least 45 minutes and systematically work their way through chunks of the Bible. That's the reason why we do it. 
Another is in our, our weekly lunches together, which, ironically, we're not doing today. There are several reasons for why we do this, but one of them is that we're hoping to cultivate the reminder that as we eat together, as His church, we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why we do meals together here. That's why we have questions on the screen so that we can continue to spiritually feed while we physically feed. That's why when we say grace, before that meal, we try to remind ourselves of this truth. And ask for God's help in digesting his word. Do you hunger for the bread of life? Do you read good books and have conversations with others that help you press deeper into the Word and continue to challenge and sharpen your understanding of it and therefore the way that you live in response? Do you chew on it slowly as you contemplate it and as you consider its implications for your life? Do you ask for God to impress the truth of it into your heart over and over again, even though you've struggled to believe it a thousand times before? And do you savor its sweetness and rejoice in its truth and thank God for his goodness. As Jonathan Edwards said, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Do you seek not just the knowledge of the sweetness of Jesus, but the experience of him? Maybe that's discouraging to you. Maybe you think to yourself, but but how? I'm, I'm trying to taste the honey, but I don't know how. Well, listen to the rest of that quote. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes. But a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Do you hear what he's saying there? If if you've not yet tasted it, if if that seems like it's elusive to you, that you can't get to it, then continue to seek understanding of what that taste is. Press on. Don't give up. Feed on Christ and devour his word. Continue to to hide it in your heart. 
You know, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. To say, I don't have time, is always incorrect. The question is, how hungry are you for the bread of life? Brothers and sisters, in our sin and in our stubbornness of heart, in our spiritual starvation, there is only one we can go to who will provide us with food for life. Feed on Jesus. And do not be discouraged if you've feasted on the wild gourds of sin for minutes or months or years. If you think that you're beyond salvation, if if you think that you've done too much wrong or that you're too much of a screw up, or if you think that you, you might be near death because you've eaten from the deathly pot for too long, I have good news. As long as there is breath in your lungs, as long as there is hunger in your soul, feed on Jesus. It is never too late. You are never too far. You are never too sick to come to him and feed on him. Look at his words in John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. All that is required When you come to him is a stomach that is ready to be filled with the bread of life. Feed on him and find eternal life. That is what he gives. And one day we will feast for all eternity, which brings us to our final point. A marriage meal. I said at the beginning... That there is a connection in the Bible between food and spiritual things. And that's evident in our passage and in the verse I quoted earlier without, without saying where it was from. In Matthew 4, Jesus reminds Satan that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see how the curse on creation in our passage is a curse that extends to us and that the only food for life that we can attain is in the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Well, just as the Lord provided an abundance of food for these men, so Jesus provides an abundance of eternal life to us. There is more than enough for us to feed on Jesus throughout our lives. And in eternity... We will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, when our our biology finally packs up, when food itself will no longer sustain these earthly bodies, we will rise to meet the Lord and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. What a glorious truth. What a glorious hope. And, you know, another reason that we do the weekly lunches is because it encapsulates and because it anticipates that glorious image of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we find in Revelation 19. In eternity, we will feast in endless joy. And whether that's a literal feast or not, we can debate about those later. The point is that that image is there for our benefit. Brothers and sisters, do you see that the reversing of the curse that Jesus finished on the cross will ultimately 
come to its complete and its final destination on that day when Jesus returns. Do you long for that day? Do you feed on Christ today, reminding yourself of the fact that you will feast with Him in eternity? Though we toil and we struggle and we work and we battle sin and we feed on Christ daily in the now and the not yet, there is a day coming when our feasting will not be mixed in with the bitter reality of the lingering curse of this world. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are tasting that bitterness now, they will feast with him in eternity where there is no sorrow or tears. As will we. What Jesus has begun on the cross will ultimately find its end point in him in eternity. And it is then that all creation will be made new. As Isaiah 65 tells us, the lion and the lamb will graze side by side. The ground will only produce life, not death. Sin and death will be destroyed and the bride of Christ will rejoice with him forevermore. The family of God will gather around his throne as one and will glorify him as he rules and as he reigns. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the things that the gathering of the church reminds us of. We meet in the here and now in anticipation of eternity. Just as God is sanctifying us individually in the here and in the now, making us more and more like Him in anticipation of the day that He finishes that work, so He is gathering us as his people in the here and now in anticipation of the day when he finishes that work. And so in finishing this morning, it seems appropriate to finish with the very meal that Christ has given us. To remind us of what he has done and what he will do. The Lord's Supper reminds us that as far as the curse is found, he has broken its power. And that's certainly true in our lives. Even though the curse of sin and death marks us from birth, when we turn from it and when we trust in Him alone, we are declared righteous. Christ takes on our sin at the cross and we receive His righteousness by faith. We're reminded of that in the Lord's Supper. And we're reminded that He is preparing his bride. 
We are his body. Gathering together here on earth as he has told us to do. As we anticipate that great and glorious day when we will do it together. In his presence as his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So brothers and sisters, this is why we say what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting here this morning and if you're from another church that preaches this same gospel that you've heard this morning, if you've been baptized as a believer and if you're a member in good standing of that church and you continue to feed on Christ and hold fast to him every single day in your heart, then please join us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. But if that is not you, then please do not take it and come and chat to me about it afterwards. Use this time to consider your spiritual need and how Christ holds out himself as the bread of life. This meal of the Lord's Supper is a reminder, not just of what Christ has done for you individually, but it is a reminder of how it unites you to his body, the church. As 1 Corinthians 10, 17 reminds us, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so as you take it, look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Get used to them. These are the people along with all the saints from across the the globe and across the time span of history that you're going to be spending all of eternity with as we worship our God together and feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of this, of course, is made possible because Jesus has reversed the curse. His body given for us on the cross and his blood shed for us on the cross. We celebrate this meal and we remember because it is as we feed on Christ, the bread of life, it is in this glorious food that we find forgiveness and eternal life.